0: This is Climate Conversations, a new series of the OcPod podcast. I'm Aaron Ransford and I'm here with our hosts, Dr. Ismail Nabeel and Dr. Manny Berengi. Dr. Nabeel is the Deputy Medical Director of Employee Health, Safety and Wellness for the Mount Sinai Health System and an Associate Professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine and Public Health at the Icahn School of Medicine. He is a fellow of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine and is the current Vice Chair of ACOM's Council on Scientific Affairs. Dr. Brenji is a board-certified physician specializing in occupational and environmental medicine, preventive medicine, and non-operative musculoskeletal medicine. A NACOM fellow, Dr. Brenji is active in the Member Communications Committee and several special interest sections. She is currently the Chief of Occupational Health at the Long Beach VA Healthcare System in Long Beach, California. She also holds a faculty appointment as Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Environmental and Occupational Health at the UC Irvine School of Public Health. Today is October 20th, 2021. On this episode, Doctors Brenji and Nabil outline some key challenges that affect workers and workplaces that are caused by the changing climate, including heat stress, flooding, and ramifications of hurricanes and other natural disasters. They discuss the role of the OEM community in forming interdisciplinary collaborations to guide the national response. Hi, Dr. Nabil. Hi, Dr. Branji. Thank you both so much for being here. We're excited to start our new Climate Conversations series of the OCPOD podcast, where we are examining the challenges of climate change and the response of the profession of occupational and environmental medicine.
1: Thank you, Erin. It's always a pleasure to talk to both of you. Hi, Manny. Thanks for joining the conversation.
2: Thanks, Ishmael. Really happy to be here today.
1: Great. So this is a very, very important podcast. Climate change is an urgent problem, an existential threat to humanity at this point. Our specialty has looked at this problem in a very different lens. This particular podcast will try to help us determine what direction occupational environmental medicine is taking. To tackle this, if you look at things from an occupational medicine practice, the clinician working in Salinas Valley, California, and witnessing and evolving as existential threat of changing climate unfolding at an exponential pace, impacting working communities, directly affecting workers' health and well-being, and it it's not limited to one person; it's involving population. It involves corporation. It involves livestock, crops, and it's our duty at this point to respond to this crisis the best way we can. What do you think, Manny? Where are we?
2: I actually uh, have uh, worked in the Salinas Valley many, many years ago, but these issues that you're mentioning, farm workers having to work in extreme heat conditions, these are pressing issues that have Gotten worse and worse over the years to the point where it's impacting people's health. Occupational and environmental medicine physicians and clinicians, we're on the front lines of climate. We're seeing the direct health impacts of climate on these workers, whether it's farm workers, landscapers, even folks working in the indoor environments. We need to understand these climate change hazards and really try to foster workplace resilient efforts in the face of these rapidly changing environments. And on a global scale, there are things happening, but we're seeing things at the local level. And to be able to translate what we understand from the scientific perspective and being able to relay that to our patients, but also to are employer groups who are really looking to us for subject matter expertise. This is where we can really make our mark.
1: Absolutely, I I can't agree more. And I I just wanna provide a context to uh, the efforts that has been done before. Uh, So 2018, American College of Occupational Environmental Medicine released the first guidance statement, the competencies and strategies uh, for both employer and occupational medicine expert. And the focus was extreme temperatures, poor air quality, high pollen counts, flooding, vector-borne diseases. And then there's a series of papers that came out in uh, Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine. I want to highlight that effort that was way back in 2018. And since then, we are marching forward, looking at the threat uh, in a very different light than it was in 2018. So um, I, I want you to highlight the IPCC report that came out.
2: Absolutely. So, uh, recently, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has identified that these extreme weather events, these heat waves and these floods, they're happening more and more often and with increasing severity each and every time. And the report really highlights that as a collective, as a global community, We all need to do our part to help try to mitigate a lot of these impacts on our climate. I'm really looking forward to working with all the stakeholders on ways that we can really move the needle when it comes to dealing with this climate crisis. Employers are really looking for guidance, and workers are really looking for guidance as well. So, being able to mesh all of these scientific jargon and really boiling it down to the bare essence of what workers need to do to continue to be most effective in their jobs, but at the same time being cognizant of the changing environment. This is really the challenge.
1: Absolutely. The issue has always been translating that scientific data that's overwhelmingly supportive of the changing environment, and then taking those scientific advancements and then really making sense at a population level, at a worker level, at an industry is a job that occupational medicine physicians do really, really well. We have eyes and ears of worker or union. We connect with employers. um, And some of us also serve the government in some capacities. Bringing the connection regarding worker and union where we've been highly effective, and as the COVID pandemic demonstrates that we we really work on the front lines. I, I think the most important part that I see from the worker and union perspectives, they, they see the change that's occurring right on the ground. And how do we really translate that into action?
2: That's the key, Ishmael. And really the first step is listening to these worker and community perspectives, understanding what people are dealing with, on a day-to-day basis. And you know these concerns about climate are very real. These folks are having to do their jobs. They have to take care of their families and provide for their families. But at the same time, they are worried about their ability to continue to provide if they're in these environments where, you know, in the case of California, where I currently live, sometimes it's really, really hot. And you know we do recommend, at least in California, we do have a heat standard, which really tries to drill down on some of these basic concepts uh, to prevent heat-related illness, um, making sure that workers have adequate uh, water, shade, taking the appropriate amount of rest to ensure that they're able to continue to do what they need to do, but preventing any potential for any heat exhaustion or any worsening of heat-related illness. That would warrant a visit to the emergency room for intravenous fluids and further treatment. So we really want to prevent that.
1: No, absolutely. And and the other part is transitioning into this more environmentally sustainable jobs, new jobs in transportation industry, wind and solar energy, home renovations, basically. I, I think this labor movement, the workers changing it to more sustainable jobs really highlight this win-win, both from the labor perspective and uh, from the employer perspective, is we need to think and tackle this issue head on. And, and occupational and environmental medicine experts really understand the changes that's happening on the ground and how these uh, workers need to shift from what they're doing currently to something that they, they need to do as the uh, climate changes. you mentioned a point that temperature is going up. think about the possibility that I can not go out uh, at 12, 12 noon because the temperature is so much I cannot perform my job functions. So essentially the job itself might shift from a morning job to a to a night night job where there's less heat intensity, it's disruptive.
0: Do these heat standards differ by state, or is that something that's set on the federal level?
2: So that's an excellent question, Erin. And currently, there are only three states in the United States that have an official heat standard. California is one of them. Uh, OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, currently is reviewing a proposed national standard that would be uh, effective for all uh, workers who happen to be in environments where there is extreme heat, or actually, if you consider it, any type of condition where uh, there is the potential for heat-related illness. So stay tuned, everyone. I think this is a very exciting time. We're hoping that there will be growing momentum to push this forward.
1: We do have tools in our disposal to sort of assess hazards at the workplace. That's the expertise of occupational and environmental medicine. And we can really address challenges that's evolving, both for the employee and the employer as well. There's a lot more work to be done, um, but some of the basic efforts could be just hierarchy of controls, elimination, substitution, engineering controls, administrative controls, PPE, PPE itself, um, kind of effective things that we can do in terms of mitigation or some of the hazards that we're seeing uh, specifically related to climate change. Moving forward, changing climate is not the only issue that we're facing. You must have the places you are living, uh, you must have seen excessive flooding. You must have seen the hurricane winds, wildfires. There are substantial uh, change that's occurring in our climate. And that has a profound impact um, on all parts of US. And that brings us to a very important thing that we need to address is disaster preparedness and response. Disasters takes a heavy toll on economies It's upwards of $14 billion health-related cost in 10-year period loan. And the issue is we don't have a national strategy in terms of disaster preparedness and response. And the threat level is different across the U.S. Coastal areas are more likely to have hurricane-related impact compared to central states where the disaster is different. Um, but all linked to the changing climate. It behooves us to think um, in terms of how locally and nationally we can help change some of the practices um, on the employment front, some of the corporations that are working in terms of disaster preparedness. We can certainly provide them with tools to assess threat level, and we can try to help manage their emergencies in a way that Uh, they're not able to do so. And it has a profound impact. It has mental impacts on the working population. It has a um, substantial physical toll and economic toll um, on on both the employers and employee uh, who are faced with these disasters that we see. And especially I want to talk about the mental toll. As we have seen in disasters, Some of the frontline workers are people who are first responders. They're part of the community. They're part of the fabric of the community. And they are going out, saving lives at the time when the threat level is extreme. None of the areas in the U.S. are immune to the impact of climate change. And as we were talking about the mental health issues, we understand that change that these individuals have been experiencing in terms of mental health, in terms of physical health. And we have an obligation to think about how to mitigate, how to create adaptation strategies for these workers, these individuals to cope with um, the disaster events that we're seeing at this point more frequently than what we have seen in the past. What do you think, Manny, um, the government has uh, some role in, in this? Can Can the government legislate some rules that allows us to make this easier for the employer and the employee?
2: I think the government does have a role, and honestly, it's multifactorial. I mean, first and foremost, they do have to provide services. I mean, you were mentioning the you know, situations with uh, increased flooding and, you know, hurricanes and having incident command, being able to respond to these events in real time, that's a critical government function and that needs to continue providing uh, additional ancillary services. For example, FEMA, uh, still a very uh, important component in the emergency response, uh, especially to some of these climate related events that are happening with increasing uh, frequency So that's the first prong of the role of government. And then you can also look at uh, what else government can do. Being able to provide resources to states and regions and even municipalities in certain instances. It's important to have a system in place where not only can money be directly sent to the areas most in need, but also taking into account the social determinants of health. Looking at those more vulnerable communities, uh, communities of color, uh, some of the inner city locations, which a lot of the times have some underlying situations with uh, how their housing was built and how they are able to continue to uh, ensure that the uh, housing and the respective units are being remediated appropriately to withstand effects of climate um, so it's really government's role to be able to provide these resources to ensure that workers who live in these communities, but also employers who are part of these communities, it, it, it's, it's all-encompassing. And we, as occupational medicine physicians and clinicians, uh, are liaisons between employers and workers, but also with government, uh, a lot of us work in government. And being able to have uh, our voice uh, to ensure that workers uh, have the protections that they need to do what they need to do uh, on a day-to-day basis is critical.
1: Um, No, well said. The government during disasters, um, the initial response is fairly robust. All hands on deck. Uh, FEMA gets engaged. Um, There's a lot of oversight and spotlight on those events, but I- interesting things happen um, right after the hurricane has passed, and we have seen that the recovery of a community, yeah, and basically the workforce, is slow, and not as robust as we'd like to see, especially post-flooding events. Um, so we do see increase in respiratory uh, issues. We have seen with Hurricane Harvey which hit uh, Houston, as well as other events, which really contributes um, to respiratory illnesses in vulnerable communities. Um, and that part uh, still continues to be missing in terms of response. As occupational medicine physicians, we, we tend to see those changes in the working communities much more clearly than Uh, The governmental initiatives have seen. And I I think that's where the need has always been, uh, especially post-disaster events uh, need to be taken into account. Uh, More remediation activities, PPE, work safety programs need to be incorporated post-event, which I think will really help in rebuilding uh, the workforce and the community itself. What do you think there is any correlates in terms of COVID-19 response and climate change?
2: I feel there are a lot of lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. In the early days of the pandemic, we saw uh, communities of color being the most impacted with high morbidity and unfortunately mortality. Uh, We do see similar types of patterns, especially when it comes to climate-related impacts on these vulnerable communities. So being able to identify ways where we can target Uh, these particular areas. Uh, I know the EPA, uh, which is currently headed by Michael Regan, has really made social determinants of health one of its key uh, priorities, especially when it comes to determining the needs of vulnerable communities as they uh, disproportionately are affected by the impacts of climate. Hopefully in the coming years, more uh, resources that will be allocated uh, to not only generating the data inputs that are necessary to monitor temperature, uh, but also monitoring uh, pollutants in the air and being able to create a systematic framework uh, by which communities can be alerted if there's a potential heat event and having the procedures and policies in place to ensure that everyone gets the message when uh, there's a heat advisory. It's encouraged that people stay in cool locations. I feel that it's going to be a very data-driven approach. And with expansion of uh, these programs, um, this will also impact workers because a lot of these workers come from these communities. So it's kind of like this ripple effect, if you will.
1: One thing that uh, I think with this conversation we come back to is sort of a clear understanding of uh, how uh, climate change is impacting human health and especially workers' health. And that means that uh, research in this area, I, I'm always fascinated by that question. Like, where do you start? How do you really connect the dots um, at this massive change that's occurring in our, in our environment? And how do you connect the dots in terms of workers' health? And, and I, I think the answer lies in the fact that occupational medicine physicians have been on the ground and sort of seeing that change. So one of the most necessary factor that I think where the gap has always been is a clear understanding of how the changing environments are impacting uh, the occupational landscape, how it's impacting the health. There's a research in etiology uh, factors like we need to think about, for example, um, chronic kidney disease of unknown etiology, right? Long-standing questions in terms of, um, is it linked? Is climate change or increasing heat is causing this deadly disease, causing a significant mortality in workers or working outside? And that these questions are not clear cut. These are not really well-defined paths that we can see the impact of climate change and the impact on human health, and particularly workers' health, At this point, there's other questions. I think pregnancy outcomes, causes of infertility, um, use of pesticides. There's a lot of things that that connect the dots. We we do see a a decrease in fertility, uh, particularly in men. Uh, The contributing factors are are multifactorial. It's a much difficult question to answer. But the climate is a driver here as well. We also need to think about interventions, right? So if you're talking about adaptation, uh, we need to address research in that aspect as well. And again, taking example of COVID, how we determine what level of PPE is required or can protect workers, uh, particularly in healthcare settings. A good uh, amount of research that was done for N95 masks helped us determine that this is the safest way to protect workers. So I, I think similar kind of initiatives, uh, particularly in research and adequate funding, will help drive new questions and subsequently answers to those questions. And the last point in terms of research is, is a dissemination of the research in, at the local, state, and national level is absolutely essential. And I, I think there need to be drivers for that. There need to be uh, impetus of how we can do this how we can do this in a way without alienating different domains and we we need to do it grounded in in science and and be effectively communicating that to local national governments as well as employees and employers we need to innovate we need to innovate our practices our occupational medicine practices to incorporate these questions in our daily practice. We need to evolve.
0: So I think we've covered a lot of topics about climate change. What would you say is the role of the OEM provider in comparison to what the role of the local state or national government in terms of policy making or addressing some of these issues?
1: Uh, policies are made or implemented based on what we see in the in terms of our clinical practice. If we, if take again, take an example of, of a disease like COVID-19, some of the policies that came out from uh, the government, uh, OSHA especially, is geared towards protecting workers. And the best way to demonstrate that the workers are protected is to demonstrate the science behind it. Um, we saw that adequate masking indoors, improving vaccination rates, really... Uh, stem uh, the spread of infection, and tracking down those who were infected early on really help uh, with contact tracing efforts. Really stop the spread of infection, and I think that drives the policy at the governmental level. We can take a heat stress example. Um, there has been a very good understanding of impact of heat on workers' health, and I think some states have adopted those policies uh, really effectively. I think that this needs to move beyond the science, and now the federal government has to take on that initiative and implement uh, these safety measures regarding heat stressors um, across the board uh, throughout the United States. And I think we can be a voice. Occupational and environmental medicine can really connect the dots between the two parts where we can really observe the clinical impact and Um, help uh, the policymakers write a more effective and robust policies. Other examples I have is asbestos, a very old example, but the work we have done in terms of protecting workers' health has really contributed to the decline of use of asbestos in insulation products. So it's a a landmark effort in terms of uh, making sure that we have the science, we understand what the health effects are, and then it translates into uh, more effective policies. And that brings me to the last part of uh, the, uh, the work that we all have to do is effective collaborations. Climate change is an enormous um, existential threat. It involves a lot of people and a lot of expertise. And I, I, I think our specialty is, is more inclusive of uh, other um, providers for example, we work very closely with industrial hygienists, um, and we are very comfortable with those relationships. And I, I think that that need to be expanded upon. That we need to bring in environmental engineers, experts on that area. We need to think and work with climatologists who, who can address um, issues that we 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 don't have a good understanding in. We also need to work with public health officials to. Really incorporate programs that reflect uh, resilience um, in the workforce. It's just the beginning, and there's so many things, um, so many threads. I think that uh, we need to address, and as occupational medicine physicians, we can certainly bring um, these diverse area into one umbrella. And I, I think part of this podcast is to bring that kind of understanding. Um, in, into a singular focus.
0: So Dr. Brenji, what would your key takeaway from today's conversation be?
2: Really, occupational medicine clinicians have uh, a lot of skin in the game. We interact with a lot of different people, employers, uh, industrial hygienists, as Ishmael mentioned, you know, scientists, public health researchers, uh, government officials. We can be those liaisons connecting all of these disparate entities to really create a real, truly collaborative effort when it comes to climate change and its impacts on health. We have the knowledge base, we have the expertise, the connections piece, as I mentioned. We bring a lot to the table and being able to utilize our platform to bring these people together and really try to advance solutions that are able to be applied and I think the key word is applications. Um, we know the impacts of climate. We've we've been seeing it. And we're going to see more of it. And as a group of professionals, it's our job to be able to not only educate, but really focus on proactive measures that can be taken so that we can continue to enjoy uh, the things that we love to do, both inside and outside of work. And uh, that's really how I see our role continuing to evolve through time.
1: So if if people want to learn a little bit more, is there any conference or um, initiatives that you can think of uh, that they can connect with to learn more about climate change and its science?
2: Absolutely. Uh, There are plenty of resources online. Uh, I highly recommend our uh, fellow colleagues to check out the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health. Uh, They have uh, great toolkits that you can utilize in your practice, uh, a lot of uh, journal articles and uh, additional uh, policy pieces. If you're interested in learning more about how to apply your knowledge in the policy domain, uh, I highly encourage our uh, fellow colleagues to uh, take a look at what they do. Yale also has uh, developed uh, a whole center dedicated to climate communication Um, As we well know, being able to message this information in clear, concise sound bites uh, is essential. And we need to understand what communication strategies work. And these guys have done a phenomenal job of educating me and a lot of folks out there, both medical and non-medical people, uh, about ways that we can capture people's attention uh, by using the right type of education and messaging around climate. So I highly encourage everyone to take a look at those resources.
1: And the final word is, I, I think we're in this together. Uh, this, we're facing this together. Uh, and we need to do our part as occupational environmental experts to really try to make a difference And I think we can. I'm so proud of our community. And I think we um, have the tools and ability, competencies to um, be a leader in this area.
0: Great. Thank you both very much. Uh, We hope to continue these climate conversations and topics as they relate to occupational and environmental medicine.
2: Thank you, Aaron.
1: Thank you for joining
0: us, we'll be back with another edition